This is the I Read Comic Books Podcast. I am your host, Mike Rappin. With me this week, two pretty cool folks, Brian Murray. Hey. And Kate Lamphere. Hi. I promise, Kate, I will not say your name wrong yet again today. I know we recorded something earlier today, and I said your name wrong earlier. I'm sorry. I'm super glad that you guys are both here this week. Um, I'm really excited to talk about the topic that we have this week. So let me ask the question I ask every single episode. How have you been? How have comic books been? Let's start with you, Kate. I've been good. I've read a couple of new things recently. I finally read Four Kids Walk Into a Bank, which was Tia's recommendation for our Goodreads 2018 Recommended Reading Challenge, which I'm only a few books from finishing. I'm very excited. I'm Um, really proud of you. That's that's impressive. Seriously. (laughs) I read like the first half of the challenge um, probably before April and then just have lagged and everything else but anyway I've I heard about this so much from you guys on the show that I bought it months ago and only just now got around to reading it um I mean it's I don't want to spoil it man anyway this is written by don't don't spoil it it's so good yeah uh this is written by Matthew Rosenberg um with art by Tyler Boss and I love the roles in this book it's about a, a group of kids four kids <laughs> mm-hmm. like do they perambulate and... somewhere do they what perambulate do they walk somewhere uh yeah into a bank <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyway, so the young girl in this group, there's only one girl, she kind of is like the group social leader, um, and then there's a young, very quiet boy that you see him in, in dresses a few times, and it's just, it's a nice mix of gender roles that, I've, I mean, we've been seeing more and more in comics, but it's nice to get another another example of this, yeah, especially in a book that's been this popular. Um, my only... Uh, gripe with this comic is that there's a character called Gertis that you see kind of off to the sidelines he's kind of like dragged along to these things and we don't know what happens to him after the show after the the issue kind of wraps up the the high action scene is over mm-hmm. like he might just be living in an alley somewhere <laughs> what happened to Gertis <laughs> did he make it justice home? for Gertis <laughs> But this was a very good book all around. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about real quick was Giant Days, as usual. I just had to say <laughs> something about it. And yeah. this issue, issue 43, um, showed a couple of the characters working for this really sketchy winter festival. And I just want to say that the sweaters in this look very comfortable and I want all of them. <laughs> just the the knit holiday sweaters. Um, the art in this is by Max Saren. So just shout out to that guy for making all of the clothing look comfortable. Yeah, That's definitely awesome. some, some A-plus sweater craft in this, in this issue. <laughs> Dear Boom Studios, could you please make these sweaters in real life? Yes, please. I will buy one. That's great. Brian, how about you? How have you been? How have comic books been? I've been good. Um, this morning was another one of my, my big try to catch up on my backlog days so i read uh wicked and divine number 36 through 39 plus the 1373 ad one shot it was pretty good i'm not certain i follow everything that's happening in this book and it might be my fault for taking so much time between reading issues Mm -hmm. um I don't know. Maybe if I was picking this up in trades, I'd be following it a little more closely. But I've kind of lost the thread of what's happening. I don't really know what's up with Minerva anymore. But I'm going to keep reading it. I'm hoping that it'll all make sense in the end. You know, I, I'm i comfortable putting faith in Kieran Gillen and just kind of seeing where that takes us. Yeah. Uh, I also read Dr. Afra number 20 through number 24, so I'm fully caught up on that, ready for this week's nice. issue to come out. Nice. It's uh it's pretty good. You know, the uh we're getting a little bit more of Afra's backstory. So it's now confirmed that she and if you're reading the Star Wars comics, uh Sana Staros used to be an item. So there's this awkward moment where her rebel ex and her imperial current crush meet 
and it's just kind of like a a fun awkward moment on a crashing prison ship <laughs> that sounds great yeah sounds like i need to catch up <laughs> yeah it's a lot of fun and then i finally caught up on runaways as well so i read number seven Ooh. all the way through number 13 on that so i finally uh, kissy fingers in the uh, background here yeah yeah i finally read issue 12 so i know all the all the big exciting stuff that's supposed to happen on that issue mm-hmm. uh even more than i expected because I definitely saw one of the things coming a mile away, but was not expecting that uh, that last page. Yep. And then number thirteen was super weird. Yeah, <laughs> I I think when I read number twelve, like I just couldn't stop tweeting about it. Like, or maybe I didn't. I just couldn't stop writing tweets and not posting them because I didn't want to spoil anything. I appreciate man, that because I am not yeah, yeah. up to date. No, I understand that, and I figure like. I don't want to spoil it for anybody because that reveal in the end of issue 12 is just insane. I love it. That's real good. Guess I'll be spending the evening reading comic books. Oh, darn. Please. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> as, see, Kate, you say that as if you weren't already going to do that. Right. <laughs> uh, well, for me this week, um, I've kind of been back and forth and traveling a lot, so I haven't read too much, which is weird because I usually do read a lot when I travel, but instead I watch a lot of Steven Universe, so I guess... That's a good trade-off in my mind. Um, but I did read some. I read Domino number six and seven and the annual number one. And the annual came out between issues six and seven. And, you know, I really... En- the one thing I want to say about this is I really enjoyed the annual. It was a series of small stories of, like, three long days that Domino has written by three different writers, I think. One of them being Gail Simone. I believe Fabian Nietzsche. Nietzsche I don't know how to say his last name, and I feel bad about it. And, yeah, there was a couple people just interspersed throughout this whole book as far as writing and art credits were concerned. Um, there, there's a, It's like an interconnected thing of like a few long days where Domino runs into some of her old friends and lovers, including Colossus. And in my notes, I wrote, ooh la la, because he was just coming off of his wedding falling apart, and then they kiss, and there's a big Russian attack. Because why not? Because it's Domino. Um, I, but overall, this is like a really fun one-off issue. If you haven't been reading Domino, like, and you want to pick this up, this in true annual fashion kind of represents a one-off story that you don't really need to know what's going on in the X-Men universe or in Domino. You just need to know who the characters are. You can pick this up because each of the stories kind of explain the lead up to how Domino found herself in these situations and what's going on with the people involved. So it was really good. Like, really well edited and I think really well put together for a single standalone issue. Um, And it kind of added a little bit more weight to the previous arc if you were reading Domino, but by no means did you need to read it in order to catch up. So I really enjoyed that. Since this is uh, issue seven, do you know if there's going to be a trade anytime soon? Yeah. So the first trade I believe is going to collect issues one through six because that's a complete standalone arc. Issue seven is the fallout from that. Um, what happens in the end? And I don't want to go into it because spoilers, but it's very good. I really am enjoying this Domino run. Um, Gail Simone totally knows how to rope people into into characters, and I already had like an interest in Domino, and even further, like I've gotten interested more in her, more in her whole luck thing, and they really flesh out her background um, with pieces that you probably didn't know if you've been reading Domino comics or reading Domino in comics for a long time. So yeah, it's been really good. Cool. I'll have to make sure that my library gets that. (laughs) Definitely. Uh, Other than that, I did read finally Descender volume six. I don't want to talk about it other than saying, holy shit, what an ending. And I'm super bummed that Descender isn't coming out for a little while and I can't immediately read all however many issues they're going to do of it. Descender was an absolute masterpiece, beautiful from beginning to end. Dustin Nguyen's art is unparalleled. The watercolors in this book were just mind-blowing, especially in this last arc where they introduced some of the big mystery and revealed, I should say, some of the big mystery of this story. Um, man, I, I just love this book. What a, what a fantastic, cool, independent book that just works. Um, if you haven't read, if you haven't had a chance to read Descender yet, I highly recommend it. All of all six volumes are out in, to go read, um, and then there's going to be a sequel series called Ascender, which is a follow up to the whole thing. So that's crazy. Man, what a good book! I I read the first two volumes. It feels like it was only maybe a year ago, and now there's six mm-hmm. volumes. <laughs> yeah, 
I mean, this book has done a really good job of coming out regularly without missing a beat. And that's impressive given how much work you can see Dustin Nguyen put into this book. Um, he's not holding anything back with his watercolors. Right. And it's fantastic. Right. So is the is is Descender over now? Is this the last of it? Yeah, so volume six is the final volume okay. of Descender, and the follow-up will be Ascender, which is about a whole thing that I won't get into because spoilers. Right. So you're saying that I need to take an entire day off of work just to catch up on this one? <laughs> this I'm one not series. saying you should, <laughs> but you could, you know? Uh, <laughs> anyways, let's talk about comic books that are coming out this upcoming week. Comic books are going to be released on October 24th, 2018. What are you guys excited for this week? Let's start with you, Brian. This week, I'm looking forward to Spider-Geddon number two. Um, I threatened, I guess is the right word, to get really into <laughs> Spider-Geddon. Uh-huh. And I followed through, man. I picked up all the uh, the Edge of Spider-Geddons and Spider-Geddon number one. And I actually branched out and grabbed Superior Octopus number one, which Ooh. is a, uh, a book that's happening now. Um. I don't know how it's happening because I didn't read everything after um, Superior Spider-Man. So I don't know how we have like young, hot Dr. Octopus running around now. It's, young, uh, hot. <laughs> That's quite a way to doc- describe doctor, it. Dr. Hotopus. <laughs> um, but he's running around. There are clones. Clones are central to the whole Spider-Gun plot. As it turns out, Dr. Octopus has been using inheritor cloning technology. And the inheritors have found a way to basically corrupt his tech and reclone themselves back into the main Marvel continuity after having been sealed away in something else that I did not read. So this is uh, it's shaping up to be a lot like a lot like Spider Verse, but in a good way. <laughs> That's good to hear. Um, I expect a full report when this whole event wraps up on whether or not it's worth it to dive into because I'm always curious about like these side events and things like Spider-Man cuz I you know I buy into all the X-Men garbage but everything else I'm always like very like not interested cuz I know it's way too much for me to get into but if this is any good I mean you got to let me know. Yeah, once I've run around and collected fucking Superior Octopus and Spider-Girls <laughs> and Spider-Geddon mm-hmm. and uh uh, Spider Gwen, Ghost Spider, and this <laughs> what? There's a a whole shitload of stuff that this is going to be crossing over into. Oh my gosh! Oh no! And I'm gonna I'm gonna try to keep up on it, but I might. A lot of that might be digital. I think. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm gonna keep buying the main Spider Gwen stuff from my friendly neighborhood comic shop, but a lot of the crossover stuff just because I I'm not gonna remember everything I, I need to pick up right, so it's gonna be right. like one big comicsology order at the end of everything mm-hmm. okay well again full report <laughs> i expect it with a reading list too because that's always what people want to read on the internet yeah um I'll, I'll send you all my my words about spider-man i love it uh i mean seeing that i just beat the recent spider-man game my whole brain is like well what if we just got back into Spider-Man? And I'm like, that's a that's a slippery slope because I it's not a good good thing for me to do. <laughs> it's a Anyways, deep well to climb down. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, Kate, what what are you excited for this week? I'm excited for the Backstagers Halloween Intermission Number One. This is by mm-hmm. James Tinian the Fourth and Ryan Sai, and this is a mini by by Boom Studios that. I think it wrapped up or earlier this year. Um, I haven't been able to find any any rumors or sign of another issue coming out other than this one holiday special. But it'll, it'll be a nice visit with these characters again. Um, this yeah. is a book I've talked about before. It's about a group of um, techies, <laughs> um, a tech group that works backstage um, making props or making um, scenery for a school play um, for a school. And it's got a magical back tech room that I, I absolutely love because I was a techie in high school and there was like this kind of unspoken magical sense to this back room that was just filled with saws and paint. But in the comic, <laughs> the back room is filled of, you know, weird creatures and um, like ghosts and stuff like that. I hope 
the ghosts will happen. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not really sure what to expect from this issue, um, other than the synopsis is that one of the the more adorable characters falls asleep and wakes up to chanting. So oh. this is going to be an oversized 7.99 issue. So I'm kind of excited for more of a deep dive into one of these stories. Well, I hope it's. It sounds almost like a mini trade or something like that, like a one-shot graphic novel almost. Yeah, it's going to be quite a bit longer. Um, I couldn't find an exact page count, but I'm expecting like 60-ish pages, I'm going to guess. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, $8, we'll see. Let us know. I I like the idea of a Halloween special that is not necessarily horror, although I do love horror. But this is a very cute book with very cute characters, so I'm expecting some very cute halloween themes (laughs) (laughs) well cool yeah i i still need to finish the backstages because i know that there are two volumes of it total yeah so i need to actually sit down and read all of it because i read the first issue and i really liked it um and i never followed up on it so i grabbed the trades at one point and um i just haven't sat down to read them so i'm happy to hear that it's it's at least good all the way through I liked um, it because i really liked the first issue i related to it a lot so maybe i'm biased but (laughs) maybe maybe (laughs) What about you? For me this week, I'm really excited about the, I believe, the last issue of The Century, which is a miniseries that Marvel's been putting out. This is by Jeff Lemire and Joshua Kassara. Uh, It's been a really weird miniature series, and if you don't know anything about The Century as a character, he's this guy named Bob Reynolds. Um, He turns into The Century, and his ultimate arch nemesis is a thing called The Void, which is this all-powerful evil entity that destroys things and the only person that can defeat it is the Sentry. Spoilers for a comic that came out a decade ago, the Void is actually part of Bob Reynolds as well. So when he turns into the Sentry, he also creates the Void. Um, And so it's this big thing where at one point the Sentry was like the most powerful character ever. He was their Superman. and Marvel was like, all right, well, he's going to die, and that's just going to happen. And all of a sudden, this miniseries came out, and I was like, okay, well, explain to me how we got here. Now, I haven't been reading all of the mainstream Marvel books, so someone out there who listens to the show, please send me a quick synopsis as to how we got from Bob Reynolds dying during Brian Michael Bennis' siege to now, but it turns out Bob Reynolds wasn't dead. And he's been going into this weird virtual world to play out his manifestation of the century and the void and they fight each other and the century always wins and he comes out of this little virtual world and everything's good because for some reason he has to turn into the century every 24 hours or he will turn into the century in real life i don't know it's a whole thing and i've been reading this book and it's been really weird so the one thing i will say i do like that marvel is doing more of these mini series where they're like hey we've got a character we've got a simple story we want to tell let's do it and so we get six, five or six issues of a series, and we that's it. Like, the story's over. We don't have to worry about it getting canceled at issue four. We don't have to worry about, oh, is it only going to go to 12 issues? Is it is it going to go on forever? You know, Do I have to plan on this for another three years just to get the whole story? It's like, no, we're just going to tell this one little story. And so I've, I've really been appreciating that. The, the other thing that's been interesting is that it feels like the century isn't the focus of the story, or he isn't like the star. The focus is all of the peripheral characters that tie into it. And so that's been really interesting to like see them flesh out this weird century character slash, I don't know, it's like an offshoot of the Shazam from DC. I don't know. I've been digging it. I mean, I'm going to read anything that Jeff Lemire does at this point, so I'm just a sucker. And this is all Nick's fault. I'll just say that. <laughs> So yeah, that's that's what I'm excited for this week. this week we are talking about romantic couples in comics because that's a thing that happens in a lot of stories in general so <laughs> since i sound like a bbc news anchor um let's let me let me introduce our panel this week we have brian murray and kate lamphere thank you for joining me this week i'm really excited to talk about romantic couples happy, <laughs> happy to be here mike <laughs> Anyways, 
so we're talking about romantic couples in comics, and we were this is kind of a thing we were talking about in our group chat that we have for all of the iRead comic books folks. You know, what what does it mean for people to be in a romantic relationship and have it not necessarily be the focus of the plot? Or at least that's the way that I took it. Because I think, you know, a lot of the times we will read comics and stories and it's always like, Oh, I've got a crush on this girl and or I've got a crush on this guy and I want to date them. And that, like, becomes part of the plot. You know, Spider-Man and Mary Jane's relationship is, like, heavily bent around the idea that Peter can't make enough time for her or his relationship with his, you know, just anybody, even Black Cat when he's, you know, out dating her. But that's, like, a focus of his story and their strife and, like, how it doesn't work becomes a plot point. And I don't think that's necessarily what we're trying to talk about here today, but... Again, that was my interpretation. Brian and Kate, how did you guys take this? Yeah, I didn't come into it with an interpretation at all, necessarily. I was looking, okay. taking more of a wide view on it. Because the relationships like you're talking about, where you know the, the relationship causes so much strife, is such a trope in especially superhero comics, but really mm-hmm. in any any medium. I don't know if we could have a full conversation while attempting not to talk about those things. Like sure. we certainly don't need to focus on them, but I think that if we try to steer away from them, we're just going to trip over ourselves. Okay. Okay. I can get behind that. Yeah, the only the only relationship in comics that I've read recently or at all that I can think of is Mal and Molly in Lumberjanes. Um and they're female characters at a girls camp and they just like hold hands in the background and like offer emotional support after the crazy things of this book happen and that's i mean it's not a it's not really a plot point it's just this like adorable discovery these two characters they're they're younger so they're still figuring themselves out and they're they're clearly like happy with one another they found some similarities together they're attracted to one another and they're clearly together but it hasn't as far as i've read um been a problem it hasn't been a focus of the story it's just it's nice it's diverse it's interesting it really rounds out the characters and mm-hmm. the, the whole group of friends it kind of helps with the dynamic of this supportive cast of characters do you think that the reason it's not a, a main feature is because lumberjanes is an all-ages book like do you think that they're just sort of not focusing on that because their intended audience might not be able to relate to it that well. To a romance, yeah. Um, I think that this book isn't shy about it being an LGBT book at all. Um, right. Well, yeah, I, and, that, and that's not yeah. what I was getting at. I was just saying, like, a lot of people who are reading this are going to be 10, 11, 12 years old. Right. Might and not have any that... personal frame of reference for a romantic right. relationship. Right, and I do like that this relationship is kind of in the beginning. It's not necessarily in the beginning stages by, you know, it's on issue 55 at this point. I've only read through issue 32, so my experience with this is limited. But it is, like, it's cute, it's innocent, it's it's emotionally supportive, um, which I think is the main focus, the main thing that makes you realize that these two people aren't just holding hands because it comforts them when walking mm-hmm. through the woods like you see you see scenes where it's clear like okay okay these two are together um but yeah gotcha. I, I can see what you're saying that it's just they're not making out because they're children <laughs> <laughs> yeah or even introducing any kind of like relationship problem might be a bit too advanced for like brian was saying like 10 11 12 year olds yeah, yeah like I think it would i'm probably... barely emotionally mature enough to handle that kind of stuff <laughs> <laughs> yeah and exactly. i think it would detract from the story too i mean it's not these like these characters in general and the lumberjanes do occasionally disagree about things but it this is more about you know friendship is magic kind of story mm-hmm mm-hmm well, I mean, for the the examples that I was thinking about are, you know, the classic comic book relationships that you see, like uh, Sue Storm and Reed Richards, Batman and Talia al Ghul. That was, like, the only DC one I could think of off the top of my head. I mean, because Kara Chaborsky, you know, she pointed out Big Barda and Scott Free, you know, Mr. Miracle and Big Barda, as their relationship as being, like, a very modern take on what a married couple looks like in comic books and how you tell a story about a married couple and make it about the two of them without introducing any kind of, like, interpersonal strife of, like, oh, what were you doing hanging out with that guy or vice versa? Um, 
because instead their problems stem from them having to solve things together and having to be a couple together. And I thought that that was like a really good example because if you read the Tom King Mr. Miracle, because that's like my only real experience with Scott Free and, and Big Barda, you know, that that story feels very real in a lot of ways because it feels like two real adults trying to deal with life being hard. On top of they are also gods that are fighting a war of billions, you know, and that's just the the war thing is just a tiny part of their relationship <laughs> in comparison <laughs> to like them having a child together and having to figure out how do we raise this child? How do we deal with being tired old adults? Oh boy. Um, and I really enjoy that. That makes me think of Saga, actually. I'm super behind on that book, but mm-hmm. it's a similar... Um, that book definitely has some marital... or Not that they're... Are they married? I don't even know. But they have their issues. <laughs> sure. And I that, mean, they're, they're a romantic couple. They're like a committed couple. Yeah. I would say that fits. Yeah, yeah. They... Um, but they definitely have their problems. And that does affect the plot. I mean, like, the plot is about them trying to raise this child and be together in a world that mm-hmm. doesn't want them to be together. So that really informs their decisions and where the story goes. Right. Um, that actually but reminds it- me of Coda, too, um, by Sysbury and Matthias Bergara. Um, it's mm-hmm. going to be a 12-issue series. I'm only on number five. But that opens with this um this bard character looking for his wife that's what it's about and he establishes that his wife has been taken by this evil force and he has to go and save her and it opens and you're like this sounds like a very like the man must save the woman story and then you get a couple of issues in and you realize that it's way more complicated than that like she is not um entrapped like you would um think she hasn't been like locked in a tower anywhere or anything like that that book is definitely kind of about their relationship and about the effect that their relationship has in the world around them because they're such, at least she is a big character um, that affects this world quite a bit. Gotcha. As you were listing off romantic couples earlier, Mike, in my head, I was just kind of like, that's not a very good relationship. That's not a very good relationship. (laughs) Cause like Sue and Reed are not, the most healthy married couple and it depends on who's writing them oh but, totally but there's definitely like he talks down to her a lot like, yeah especially in in older stuff it seems to have gotten a little bit better lately but and then you've got batman and talia al ghul like <laughs> i know the worst example i don't even know where to fucking start with that one <laughs> yeah yeah uh, i think the worst thing about their relationship is of course damian wayne but that's oh snap brian's shots fired yeah it's because he's a shit character oh man fight me find me on twitter (laughs) i was just gonna say that do you think that their negative relationships do they do they create new plot points do they drive the plot forward does it feel like the effects of their relationships are i don't know kind of fake or does it help the story? The thing with Batman and Talia al Ghul is it was like, okay, he's in love with this woman who is a master assassin. And then she tries to kill him and he tries to kill her. But he's not trying to kill her because he loves her or something. I don't know. It's It feels it's very tropey and it feels really just shitty. But it works for a like, driving plot in, in some weird ways. Um, I, I personally don't enjoy stories with Talia al Ghul because I feel like it's very rooted in a lot of history that I just don't know about Batman and don't really care to know because there's been so much garbage that's gone around with that character um, and, and Talia al Ghul. And it, and, it definitely uh, <laughs> seems like her relationship with Batman is the least interesting thing about her. Like Right, 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 right. She leads an entire League of Assassins. Seems like there's a lot of cool stuff you can do with her. Yeah. Yes, yes. And so them being together is just, it, it always feels weird. I just, again, I listed them because it was the only thing I could think of at the time. I mean, Clark Kent and Lois Lane, I think, is probably a good-ish example, despite the whole Lois Lane's in love with Superman storyline thing. I, I don't really know enough to speak to it. And again, this is where I feel weird because I can't speak too much about DC relationships because I haven't read enough of them. But I do know enough, you know, about Rogue and Gambit to go on for about an hour. So I, I won't say. go into that yet. Uh, we could talk about X-Men drama all so day. So you just talk. We'll uh, we'll go get a drink. We'll come <laughs> yeah. back in 20 minutes. Yeah. And- I mean, the that example is the best and the worst one in a lot of ways because their relationship has been constantly rooted in just all sorts of problems because Gambit's a piece of shit. And, like, <laughs> I'll just frankly say it. Uh, 
and he he can't he can't control his inhibitions. He, it's not like he's out cheating on Rogue all the time, but he definitely plays that label of like, well, you know, we never said that we were a thing every once in a while. Or Rogue is like, could you please stop stealing from people? And he's just like, oh sure, Mona me, whatever. I don't know what the fuck he would say to her. And Mon something. I can't, I don't know enough French. But then he would go and steal shit, and she's like, Gambit, I told you not to. And he's just like, oh no, Gambit doesn't know. And he would then <laughs> fucking run away. So it, it it's it's weird, but now they're married, and I couldn't be happier because it all finally worked out or something. Because <laughs> Mike's OTP is finally canon. Exactly, <laughs> they made my fan fiction into real life. Uh, uh, yeah, so I don't know. They're not they're not a good example. Do you think that that helps round out his character? Like they're seeing pieces of their relationship. Do you think that it informs your knowledge of who Gambit really is? Well, one of the big pieces of the story that they did for a little bit during the Rogan Gambit series that Kelly Thompson wrote was Gambit was constantly apologizing, saying, like, I really fucked up, I really fucked up, really fucked up. Um, and Rogue's just like, I don't care, sugar. <laughs> you fucked up. And uh, th- But they do manage to make their relationship work in the end because they have this history and, I don't know, all these tropes that you immediately would read a BuzzFeed article, like 11 things that you shouldn't, you know, base your relationship on. And they filled out 10 out of those 11 <laughs> and they were like, Oh, I guess we're all good. Let's get married. Um, and it, it worked out, I guess. I don't know. It, it feels like things are better in a way that like Gambit realizes that he did all these bad things and he's apologizing. And since that series came out, he's done well, but then again, he hasn't been in enough comics to fuck up yet. So we shall see again, not a good example. What I do think is a good example is from, uh, and this will come as a huge shock to listeners of our show, in Giant Days. Um, <laughs> no way. <laughs> we, Brian and Kate are talking about Giant Days on the show? No way. <laughs> yeah, crazy, right? Uh, McGraw and Susan are a couple in that book that Finally. I love to pieces. And I think it's because they are super different from each other that doesn't seem to matter to their relationship you know they Mm -hmm. they clearly love each other and it doesn't matter that mcgraw likes woodworking and susan likes murder (laughs) (laughs) they back each other up in a really interesting way where susan has qualities to an extreme that mcgraw doesn't have at all so she kind of reminds him to have a backbone now and then like stand up for himself when he needs to and Mm -hmm. he in turn kind of like tempers her righteous fury (laughs) there's a really nice moment in this last was it the last issue or the one before that anyway no spoilers y'all no spoilers i gotta read this book I'm, i'm on the trades i won't say anything specific um susan gets really mad about something and she goes to confront somebody and fix it on like a social level. But the McGraw is looking at like the, the physical things that can be done to like physically temper the situation. Like, Mm -hmm. like how can he remove this door? And therefore the problem is gone because there's physically Uh no barrier between. Uh Anyway, it was really great that they, you see this one problem and they both come at it in different ways and they both, help a bit but of course you need both the person physically doing something to fix something and then somebody also getting everyone else involved to write a situation mm-hmm. yeah i mean giant days on the whole if you look at that whole book is all about ex- like strangely healthy relationships between friends and others to to a certain extent i mean i realize that there are some bad things that happen here and there but on the whole like that book is very wholesome in that regard it tries to show you like this is how you shouldn't pe- treat people and here's what happens when you do uh, there was also a relationship where daisy was dating a a german exchange student um yeah yeah and that that relationship was almost textbook bad like oh yeah oh um, yeah they had specific situations where it showed her girlfriend not wanting to hang out with her friends but she expected daisy to hang out with her and her friends all of the time um Mm -hmm. it i mean it was almost like like telling people who might be in a situation like that that that's not healthy and that you need to go talk to the people who know you yeah i i mean it's kind of a question of like you know these relationships are super important in comics and in a lot of ways we end up 
using them as like crutches for plot points to say like, oh, well, this couple's been getting along for a while. Why don't we introduce some some problem in their relationship that oh, they can't boy. get over? Yeah. I mean, and you look at something like, and I will always go back to this because it will forever frustrate me until the end of time. But the the Batwoman series that was written for the New 52, Maggie Sawyer and Kate Kane were supposed to get married. They had this whole big buildup for almost 24 issues of these two being very much in a very solid relationship that had its problems, but nothing that was so like, you know, like, I don't like that you're Batwoman all the time. Well, I don't like that you get in my way, you know, because I'm Batwoman. <laughs> and... But it still worked. Like, their relationship was very good, and it was a very positive, like, um, two women being together in, like, a very good relationship, I think. And they ha they were building up to this whole, well, they proposed, and they were going to get married, and then DC said, no, that's just, that's not what happens to our characters. They can't be in that good of a situation. <laughs> and I'm like, hold on a second. Like, of all the other bad shit that you've done to Batwoman throughout this whole series, you know, where her father dies, and she's getting tortured and beat, and all these other people are getting killed, and Batwoman can't do anything about it. You're not going to give her the one thing. You're not going to give Kate Kane the one thing that she can do that she has complete control over and make her happy to make herself happy. It's so frustrating because that book just ultimately ended on like a weird note and then shifted, like it made a whole 90 degree left turn and went in a different direction as they tried to just throw creators at it. And it was like, why are these relationships even in, in the book in the first place if there isn't an opportunity for a good outcome? Like, what the hell is the point? And I'm, I'm, I know I'm focusing a lot on this Batwoman thing, but it's like, we do read these books to try to fiction, like read these happy fictionalized moments because it's an escape to say like, oh, well, maybe things aren't going great for me, but at least I know that Peter Parker and Mary Jane are having a good day this week. Yeah. <laughs> you know, as you pick up your book on Wednesday. Yeah, I mean, figure some of these couples have to have happy endings. Just from the, yeah. the law of averages says that. Like, <laughs> Some of them gotta be happy at the end of it. <laughs> I just right. I just finished the wilds and that series. I won't um, spoil it for anybody that hasn't picked up issue number five yet. But that series ended up being qu quite driven by the relationship of the two characters, Daisy and Heather. And mm -hmm. in issue number one, you immediately see that their relationship isn't perfect. Like their lives are difficult. They're um, suppliers in a world that has. Um, creatures that are out to get them and mm -hmm. so their their lives are hard and then they know that if they're in a committed relationship that that relationship is going to be difficult to have and you're always going to be worried about this other person um but by the end of the series um it's better <laughs> like <laughs> yeah totally it's it it really it drives the plot quite a bit i mean some of these um actions might not have happened in the story if it weren't for one or the other of them being in trouble and needing help um, but it does show this um, this really committed even if it's not verbally um, encouraging relationship between two people and again this kind of goes into the you know the law of averages like brian said some of these have to turn out okay you know um i think again to go back to my mr miracle example i think that's a perfect example of a relationship that goes well despite all of the horrible things going on around the two like this this firm committed relationship is actually the rock in which these two characters can build their foundation and it works really well so that they can they know that by the end of the series they can depend on each other to do the things that they need to do in order to keep the story going and make it work really well. And I don't want to spoil it, spoil Mr. Miracle number 11 because it is fucking amazing. But uh, yeah, like that, that relationship becomes like when you reflect back on the previous 10 issues in issue 11, you see like how important it was for them to build and get through their problems in order to build up to this last issue where they have to make this hard decision. Um, and man, I mean, again, what a perfect example, because at least that's one, strangely, one DC relationship that worked out well compared to the Batwoman one, which I'm still salty about to this day. But I mean, an another non, I guess, non-big two that one that I can think of is Invincible and I said Adam Girl, I wrote in my notes because I didn't actually write uh, her name down. Adam but Eve. Adam Eve, the Adam, thank you, not Adam Girl, <laughs> Adam Eve, uh, you know, the, the two of them, Invincible and Adam Eve, getting together um, was a long time coming and it built on a whole hundred plus issues of backstory, but by the end of that series, by the end of Invincible, like their marriage is a very important part of the story that allows them to get to the end and make some 
you know, big decisions about how they're going to do things, how they're going to raise their daughter, how, where they were going to live. You know, like the problems become, hey, I've been living in space for six years. I'm ready to go back to Earth now. Can we please do that? And, with, you know, with Mark saying, I don't want to do that or Invincible saying, I don't want to do that. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Like that book is a pretty good example of like a solid relationship that has its problems, but they're able to work together in order to figure it out. Meanwhile, fucking aliens and time traveling bad guys, all this stuff is happening. But this relationship at least becomes a solid thing that both of the characters can depend on. And I will say that I the, think it's good. The, the single frames of their daughter growing up in the last issue maybe yeah. maybe my favorite part of the entire finale yeah it was very funny watching invincible try to be a dad <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> i mean that book I, I to go on a tangent here it wrapped up in a way that i was very satisfied with and i was so worried about how robert kirkman was going to end that book and it really was it was a very good ending all things considered because um, that book has had its ups and downs and its weird points and it's some of the things just don't age well and that's just oh, man. part of life. A lot of it doesn't age well. <laughs> yeah, um, but it's still it ended in a way that you were kind of like, okay, this this I can be happy with. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, and, and Brian, to your point, yeah, that's her growing up throughout the whole series is actually some of the better parts of the book. You know, especially in the later issues of her being a baby and what's her name, Tara, <laughs> as a baby. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed that book. But that's, I mean, their relationship was a super focal point of the book after, like, they finally got together. Do you think that the relationships in the story reflect the overall tone um, and maybe chaotic or um, calmness of the story? Does that make sense? <laughs> no, I think I think that's that's interesting. I, I mean, in, the, in terms of Invincible, I don't know if that's necessarily true. Because I feel like the more their relationship was solid and working, the more chaotic everything else was, to the point where the chaos of the outside world was almost influencing their relationship to, in some regard. You know, Mark was making decisions, Mark as Invincible was making decisions that Adam Eve didn't agree with, and like it was an external force that was causing their marriage to have problems. It wasn't like, I don't know, weird tropey things that like would you'd see in a like your standard soap opera or something. Yeah, I was just thinking about the vision, um, the recent book that had a couple of trades to it, and how the marriage in that one kind of dissolves in a very jumpstart way. Did you read that book? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, kind of the wife starts to kind of lose um, the track of Her what's marbles. real. Right. Yeah. And that's, a, <laughs> but that's a big reflection of what happens in the book overall. I mean, it, it's a, them trying to figure out whether they want to be human or want to try to be human or try to um, accept that they're not entirely human. <laughs> yeah. But if, they're robots. For sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's pretty much a direct reflection of the entire situation of vision and, and his family at large. I mean, of course the, the wife kind of losing her mind, is going to impact what happens, but I think that it's basically a micro reflection of what's happening in the book at large. Yeah, I think like as that as that story builds, things, the chaos builds on the yeah. chaos in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, I think that that was a strangely enough like a reflection on Vision as he was becoming derailed. So was the rest of his family, but that makes sense because he kind of created them, right? You know. <laughs> so yeah, I, I mean. Uh, that book has it's got so many things about it. Like people could write essays for years about it because I think like it's, it's got so many different things going for it. And I think the relationship between um, the vision and his wife, whose name I cannot remember. I know, um, me too, me neither. The, they, I, I think like that was one weird facet to that book that I was just like, he made this person to be his wife. Um, and she has independent thought, but in a weird way, like, I, I always worried, like, it, was she, like, subservient to him right. for whatever reason? But yeah. it never it never really felt that way. But, like, it still came out of it. Like, he had this son and this daughter and this dog, this wife, and he made them all. Like, to what extent is it still, like, a creator-to-creation relationship? It was um, certainly... Yeah. I feel like Vision was very patronizing at times in that book. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Like, he was definitely. definitely talking to them as a creator to his creations. Yeah, yeah. So I was... Like, sometimes I feel like the relationships and stories actually serves, like, a specific purpose in, in the in the story. I mean, of course, 
the relationship in the wild kind of drives the plot, and um, the relationship in Coda um, does something very similar. It introduces, um, it's kind of an exposition as to the issues that are going to come up later. Um, Hum's idea that his wife needs saving <laughs> mm-hmm. um, turns out to not to not be really the situation that's at hand, but it does introduce the idea that something is wrong here. And I was just thinking about Bitch Planet. Um, I just recently read the first two, well, the entire thing. There's only two volumes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but there's a moment in it where a man is discussing his wife, and you see um, the woman that, that is his wife in the, the prison system, and you see him talking to an administrator about um, basically the problems that that happened with the situation and you think the entire time that this woman is the person that he's talking to but it turns out that he basically gave her over to the system so that he could marry somebody else and get her out of the yeah. way and that yeah. really set up the ex it was a large part of the exposition for this story because it shows you how easily this system is manipulated to work for the men in charge it, it shows you what a creepy disgusting system they're living in right yeah yeah and just like how garbage and how how much it like appeals to men it is a is a it is a patriarchal system and it only benefits men like that's that's kind of the takeaway that i have from that whole book yeah um yeah it was just a really good um as as uncomfortable as it was to read that scene it did set up um how the system works in just a couple of pages I'm like going through like my graphic novels on my shelf, thinking, um, trying to find something that's not big two, because like feel like we should talk more about big non big two books. And one of the books or characters that couples that I can think of are uh, Tony Chu and Amelia Mintz from the book Chu. And I don't know if you guys read that book at all, not but yet. that like that relationship um, is really funny because they both have these food based powers and they manage to find a way to basically help each other back and forth by. Um, you know, like Amelia is, is there as like a very good support system for Tony who doesn't have anything and his whole life is bad. And um, meanwhile, she's just she, and, and meanwhile, Tony is like falling apart. I don't know. I think their, their relationship really works for me because it was again like a it became a foundation of the story where the two of them like at the end of the day could always come back to each other to fall back on despite all of the chaos that was around this. I think that like is kind of the central idea that I'm coming back to is when relationships in, like, for me, when relationships in comic books are like a foundational point and not a, a place to put an entire plot into, um, it makes me feel good. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. They, I, I like the relationships that do work toward, um, establishing some part of the story, whether it be like the themes, like in Lumberjanes, um, or the complicated world, like in Bitch Planet or Coda, they they really speak to something else in the story that's not just the relationship. Yeah, I mean, in relationships can be used to definitely establish a sort of normalcy to say, like, okay, here's an example of a handful of relationships or a single relationship to give you an idea of what this world is like. Because here's how you under like, however you understand relationships, this is how it's different, you know, or here this is how it's the same. And I, yeah, that's that's a really interesting point. I never considered that um, to use like relationships as a way to kind of give you a gauge as how the world works. Though I do wish that I would had the ability of Amelia Mintz, where I was a Sabo Scrivener. Anything that I write, you could taste. Oh my gosh, I love her name, <laughs> Mintz. I know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that book is just fantastic. I've been like sitting on it for a while. Um, because I wanted to do a full reread when the 12th volume came out, and I haven't done it yet. And I think I mentioned on the show, someone needs to just kick my ass to do it. Maybe I should <laughs> say I'm going to do it before the end of the year so that I can break that promise and finish it sometime next year. Um, how, about <laughs> if you, uh, how about if you read it before the next time I'm on an episode with you? That gives you like two weeks. That gives me You've like got a time. week, Kate. <laughs> no, I'm on the episode in a week. Kate's on the episode in two weeks. Oh, okay, good. Okay, that's plenty of time, I guess. Um, well, cool. I guess, I don't know. Do you guys have any final thoughts about romantic couples in comics? Because I think, I feel like we've, we've gone through a lot, Just sometimes I want to give you guys a chance. Yeah. Sometimes they can be good. Sometimes they can be bad. Um, I think that there, it's kind of a reflection of where we are as a society also that some of these books point out very, um, very directly to someone in 
a bad relationship is experiencing these things or somebody in a good relationship is, you know, having a lot of support um, and that person has their back and they're comforted in bad situations, sort of stuff like that. And then also yeah. the diversity of relationships in comics has been um, really great lately. I'm really enjoying seeing um, like Lumberjanes or um, you had another one. Oh, the Wilds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but we could always use more. Like, yep. Yeah. I want more queer couples. <laughs> yeah. I want more interracial couples. Like, it's not. Yeah. I don't know. These are all real things that happen in real life. People put them in your comic books. Well, cool. I guess um, this is a fun episode. So thanks, you guys. Um, if you guys want to follow us on Twitter, you can check us out on you know Brian's at Brian Head. Kate is at Kate L Fear. Um, I'm on Twitter at Mike Rappin, and the show is at IRCB Podcast. We retweet stuff and post polls. Like, who is your favorite saga character? And the four options are Goose, 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 and Frendo. Oh, Frendo. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know who Goose is yet. That's okay. You can also check us out at our Goodreads group, where you have weekly threads. I know I recently asked everybody what their favorite symbiote moment was in honor of the Venom movie coming out. You can also hit us up on our website, ircbpodcast.com where we have a pronunciation guide and a merch store. You can rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast catcher, which means more listeners for us and better rankings and maybe even more merch. You can email the show at ircb at destroythesibe.org and you can subscribe to us on Patreon where you can get exclusive audio, early access, and cool stuff. That's patreon.com slash ircbpodcast. Infinity Shred does all the music for our show. They are the best band in the universe. Xander is a wizard. He edits the show, but this week, I'm editing the show. So get ready for all sorts of fun radio blips and weird sounds that I can't figure out how to edit out of this episode. (laughs) I want to say thanks to Brian and Kate for being on the show. Thank you to the listeners for checking us out every single week and communicating with us, sending us questions and all that stuff. We have a Q&A episode coming up on November 14th, so make sure to check that out and send us questions. Uh, So until next time, enjoy your comics. Don't be ashamed of them.